Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essay speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. We would also like to inform you of an upcoming Sexaholics Anonymous Internet Marathon. Around the World in 24 Hours will take place starting at noon Universal Time on November 29th and will end promptly at noon Universal Time on November the 30th. It's free to register online at www.sim.sexaholicsanonymous.eu. Thank you very much, and without further ado, welcome to the Daily Reprieve. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Priscilla, and I'm a recovering sexaholic. And I have to tell you, um, I've spoken a few times before with, uh, in some other groups, but for some reason this morning I've been pretty anxious. Um, so I called one of my sponsees because I thought if I stay in my head all the way down, I'm just crazy. Um, so um, I've been sober since... February 7th, 1993, and as Bill Stewart would say, for that I'm never sufficiently grateful. Um, And I want to start off with yesterday's daily reflection, Um, and it's the quality of faith. This has to do with the quality of faith. In no deep or meaningful sense had we ever taken stock of ourselves. We'd not even prayed rightly. We'd always said, grant me my wishes instead of thy will be done. And that's from the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions on page uh, 32. God does not grant me material possessions. Take away my suffering or spare me from disasters. It's going to squeak. But he does give me a good life, the ability to cope and peace of mind. My prayers are simple. First, they express my gratitude for the good things in my life, regardless of how hard I have to search for them. And second, I ask only for the strength and the wisdom to do his will. He answers with solutions to my problems, sustaining my ability to live through daily frustrations with a serenity I did not believe existed and with the strength to practice the principles of AA in all of my everyday affairs. So the topic I've picked is just for today, a concept I learned in recovery. So I want you just to imagine a little girl. She's lost inside a book, or she's playing the piano, but she's always alone. But she felt safe. Her world brought her happiness and dream big dreams for the future. What was happening around her, she didn't really know because she never felt smart enough or safe enough. She never felt like she fit in. Matter of fact, at one point, I was convinced I was adopted. I'm not sure if if every child feels that at some point, but um, I was a surprise baby. Um, I'm 13 years younger than my sister was. Uh, And my other friends had lots of friends, and so I just was kind of by myself. Uh, My mom, well, I'm going to switch back to me. You guys know it's me. I was going to try to make it like a little story, but... Um, my mom uh, thought we had to look perfect. We had to do everything right unless, um, you know, we did some little thing. And it, 
even if it meant that we weren't happy with it, we had to keep other people happy. Um, I had never heard the word lust. Matter of fact, if I had, I would not have had a clue what it meant. Um, but I do know that at the time, I just stayed in my head. Uh, and I did that truly with uh, reading lots of books and, and playing and wishing that she had what her friends had or thought they had. You know, they would have cool games or I, it didn't matter. So I wasn't enjoying the things around me. I was just thinking about what, the, what I wanted to have because I guess I thought I could live in that magical world where everything turned out just right. She was able to live that life um, in this book she read, I, I just read vociferously. Um, and for some reason, I think I must have lived in Russia at one point in my other lives um, because I loved Russian novels, maybe just the glamour of that. And um, so I pictured myself living back then. The piano was really uh, a way of showing my emotions. Uh, if I'd had a good day at school, it'd be something beautiful and peaceful. And if I'd had a crappy day at school, I would come home and just pound the piano. Um, Les you know, sat down to do this. Um, I was kind of thinking how I just hadn't even recognized lust. You didn't know. I think it first popped up for me that I'm aware of. Uh, in first grade, um, there was a boy that I liked, and I wanted to kiss him, and he didn't want to be kissed, so I chased him down and kissed him in front of the teachers. Um, now, maybe other little kids did that all the time, um, but for me, it was about the chase, control and, and manipulating the situation even if it meant that people, you know, were watching. Um, I, you know, I'm sure there weren't any consequences then other than he told me I couldn't have any more of his potato chips at lunch because his mom always made fresh potato chips every morning. Um, I, didn't, I had just a few boyfriends in high school, but I was best friends with most of the guys in my class. I was the one they came to to talk about their problems with their girlfriends. Um, I wasn't the one they dated. I didn't think I was cute enough, smart enough, fun enough, whatever. Um, as we hear a lot, um, our insides never match what we saw on the outsides of others. Um, so at that time, sex wasn't a big thing for me, but wishing what I had for others staying in my head. Um, I just knew that somehow I wanted to make the boys like me and want to date me. So back to my old routine of my books and my piano. Um, I learned f from uh, wonderful teachers, my parents and my sister, about manipulation and control. Um, but I also learned how to be passive-aggressive. It's like, of course I'll do whatever you want me to do. And meanwhile, find ways to you know, do something mean or, or even better, gossip or judge or any of those other character defects. I don't have great memories of high school. Some people talk about their wonderful high school years. Mine were not. But college, now college was another matter. And it started on the very first day I was in line to sign up for something. And I was talking to this guy in line and exchanged names. And he said, what's your nickname? Well, I sure didn't want to be known as Prissy because that word is something I'd tried to avoid all my life. I said, oh, just call me by initials, uh, PC. Well, 
it tr- I really can remember that feeling and where I was standing because I thought, I can be who I want to be. I don't have to be what my mom wants me to be or anyone else. Of course, you know, my old messages were still with me, but I felt empowered. Um, <laughs> and I kind of found out that college was pretty fun. Had lots of friends. Um, and just really feeling confident in myself. And then I met the love of my life. Um, I was at a dance somewhere, one dance with him, and I knew we were getting married. And everything was going to be wonderful in my magical world. I thought about him almost every minute, and uh, I also talked um, forever uh, to my roommate about him. Um, (laughs) For those of you, everyone in this room who's younger than me, uh, you may find this little history lesson interesting. Uh, At that time... Men and women lived in separate dorms. Boys didn't come to your room. Uh, You would actually meet your boyfriend downstairs in the lobby. You had to sign out. You had a curfew. And it's just um, amazing looking back on it. Well, the love of my life, Ron, and I um, been seeing each other since the fall. It wasn't until the spring of the year that um, I really, I don't remember, but I'm convinced I probably manipulated the situation. Uh, And we had sex on the front porch of this empty house on campus. Now, people came by on those steps all the time to make out of where it didn't matter. And once that happened, you know, we're off and running. Um, You know, the next fall, I really thought he was going to ask me to marry him. And instead, he broke up with me. And the reason he broke up with me, he said, all that I wanted in the relationship was sex. And I thought, well, what's so bad with that? Um, You know, that chemistry. Um, I was crushed. You know, my dream just kind of shattered. Um, But that's okay, because earlier in the fall, there was a new guy. I was in a meeting with faculty and staff. Mind you, I'm still in, in love. Um, and when I looked across the room, we, you know, kept making eye contact. At a break, I manipulated my way into a conversation and to get myself introduced, and lo and behold, he was the assistant dean of students for men. I don't go small. I go for, you know, big uh, things to tackle. He was only three years older than me, so meanwhile, I'm dating my, my boyfriend, but trying to manipulate um, this man, Gary, uh, into taking me out. It's kind of crazy when I look back on it. But um, when Ron and I broke up, I thought, huh, we're going to start on this manipulation thing even more. Um, Finally, um, I got him uh, to say, would you like to go to Louisville for dinner? And I was like, oh, cool. So I borrowed my big sister's ID, and um, we had to, I had to sneak off campus. And so um, I guess I thought I wanted to do whatever it took to keep him. So, of course, I drank. Um, no sex, but just the whole fantasy. Went back in, had to sneak back in the dorm. You know, again, if I'd been caught, um, A, dating somebody on staff, 
or drunk, I would have been kicked out of school. But I didn't care. I just, my college roommate helped me up the steps. Um, well, since I couldn't date him officially, because the dean of women called him in the next day, and um, a guy from this one fraternity invited me out. We had a great time. I, of course, drank. Everything up to having actual intercourse. Well, lo and behold, I started getting calls from the guys in this fraternity. Never occurred to me that I'm sure I became kind of, who knows, there probably were bets on who could get me to actually have intercourse. I don't know. But it didn't matter because I was controlling the situation. And um, that's kind of how I finished out my sophomore year. Didn't see Gary again until um, early in the summer he called and wanted to know if he could come up for a visit. Well, well, yes. Um, the next weekend he invited me down for um, an event. You know, again, I controlled that situation and we had sex. And again, I thought, we're in love. We're going to, you know, be together forever. Well, my family and I moved to Hawaii and <laughs> again, history lesson. That was before internet, so no Skyping, no um, emails, no texting. Uh, you didn't make a lot of long-distance phone calls. If you communicate with somebody, you wrote a letter. So I didn't see Gary from July until December. He came over, and we got engaged. I didn't see him again till a week before the wedding. So a really good, intimate relationship had been started. Yeah. Um, again, that fantasy world for me. Everything was going to be okay. Um, and it was for the first few years. And I, I, it was at that point I just became aware that he was complimentary of other women and always critical of me. Well, that kind of sucked. <laughs> Sorry about that for those of you who are listening. Um, and so I began having emotional affairs with his uh, colleagues at work. Seemed pretty innocent, but that wasn't enough. Um, and I'm used to say to myself that the principal at the school where I worked um, convinced me to have an affair. Well, I don't think it probably took much convincing. But talk about a fantasy world. I'm, you know, looking back, how I didn't, A, get caught, or, I don't know, just, um, we were together at school, um, he came to my house, and the, the reality is, if we'd been caught, he would have kept his job, but that was during a time that um, women, uh, you know, well, I guess even coming into SA, that was my thought, women were supposed to be the good girls. And I would have been fired, and my reputation would have been shot. Somehow, that didn't happen. Um, that relationship ended. I was still married at the time. And, you know, I just, that hunger was still there. That lust for something to fill me up was still there. Now, you notice I haven't, the title was just for today. I was no more in today than anything. I wanted to find some way to make my world come turn into something good. So 
Um, at that point, I started working, um, left teaching, went into um, another field, and ended up having a flaming affair with somebody I worked with. It was probably one of the uh, ugliest things I could have done. Um, so, without going into gory details, you guys all know any gory details that you might have had in your own life. Um, a friend of mine said, you've got to stop dating him. You know, besides the fact that he was married, he was also seeing one of the teachers I worked with. Uh, it was just, you know, one of those icky things. Um, so, I got a job up here. I thought, okay, great. No more getting involved with colleagues. Um, once again, those boundaries got crossed. Um, and then I decided, okay, no being with colleagues unless they live out of state because I was part of a national organization. Well, it made sense, right? You know, you still were in taking care of some boundaries. Boy, my disease made me crazy. Um, as my sponsee reminded me this morning, I'm still crazy today, <laughs> but I have at least some boundaries around my craziness. Um, so, you know how that whole intrigue thing, just that little fix. Um, I was at a meeting, folks from all over the country, and met this new person. He was in, you know, nice dress pants, nice shirt, you know, kind of cute. And because all the tall guys always date short girls, not to put any shame on anybody, um, I always ended up dating uh, guys close to my height, a couple times even sh uh, shorter. So the next day when he came to the meetings, he had on, you know, nice shorts, uh, much more casual. Well, this nice, you know, button-down guy had tattoos all over his legs, really cool tattoos, uh, tattoos on his arm. That was all I needed. That just was like that edge. We, um, the chemistry was really there. Again, without going into all the gory details, we would find reasons for him to come down and help me in the job that I was working on. Um, I convinced him to, and this is true, I did convince him to have an affair. Um, he was married. He'd never, according to him, and I had no reason to really doubt him, he'd never had an affair before. We'd see each other two or three times a year. Again, that fantasy world that this was a real relationship. You know, we talked intimately. Everything was good until he invited me to Atlanta one weekend. And when I got there, he didn't talk to me. Um, he was just very cold. The next night, he told me he would not see me anymore. I'd coerced him into an affair. And I drove all the way back to Nashville hysterical. Again, that magic world had died. Talked with my priest and um, told her what had happened. Only that series, not all the other stuff, of course. And she asked if I wanted to see a counselor. Um, I did. And meanwhile, I was still occasionally thinking about, you know, maybe one of the people I worked with. But, well, it finally happened. Um, I crossed that boundary again, and when I went back to see my counselor, he suggested, oh, my God, look how much time I've got. 
I've just been kind of rattling along, thinking, I've got to get through this, I've got to get through this. Um, but he suggested that I come to essay. I'm like, what? I cannot tell anybody else these secrets. There's no way. And some of you have heard me say that I walked into a room full of men. I fully expected seeing people sitting around in trench coats and looking like, you know, some scuzzy people from, not to be unkind to homeless people, but to look like they'd been living under a bridge. And instead I saw, you know, guys that had come from work to go to a meeting. I looked at the floor the whole time. And for those of you who've been to Nashville, at the time it was the blue portable in my heart of hearts, it will always be the blue portable, no matter what color they paint it. Um, and I was so, in my own little world, I was convinced they were adding female pronouns because I was there. Um, and they did a newcomers meeting for me. And I started hearing my story. You know, it didn't matter if it was pornography, um, gay sex, uh, multiple partners. I heard my story. And I went, one part of me could hear that. And um, a woman came in and sat down beside me. And um, it really felt like a God moment. Um, Her name was Martha. Uh, Trust me, I'm not a biblical scholar by any stretch of the imagination. But I do remember Martha um, in the Bible. And she wrote me a note and she said, um, I'm going to be out of town, but call me Saturday. And it truly felt like I, I maybe could live. And then the worst thing in the world happened, somebody from church walked in. I'm like, what? <laughs> no. Um, I, I really panicked. I literally was on the edge of the chair because I thought if people at church find out, that I'm at this kind of a meeting. Um, I called him that night. He was the only person I knew. And, um, I mean, we were friends. And I said, I can't do this. Um, And he said, oh, you don't have to do it forever. I'm like, thank you. And he said, you just have to do it one day at a time. Which is such a random concept to me. But I was willing to believe it that night. Um, I, I still felt pretty empty. Um, and as I kept going to the meetings, um, I started hearing people, I thought all the people talked about was sex. You know, what their problem was was sex. And then I started hearing them talk about relationships with people at work and um, resentments and anger and you name it. And I thought, you mean it's more than just my insanity and my acting out? And that's when I first started hearing people talk about lust. Um, you know, all I'd heard was the sobriety defi- definition that just had stuck with me. What I had missed for a long time was that it's about progressive victory over lust. And that seemed interesting and it didn't connect with me till I'd been in the program for a couple years. Sober, working a good program, 
And I was sitting outside talking with this uh, woman at this event, and there's a police officer across the street. And I kept commenting on, you know, what an interesting guy he looked like he'd be, but it was really fun to talk to. Gosh, doesn't he look cute? You know, blah de blah blah And finally, she, this is a total stranger that I've been just chatting with, and she said, you're lusting after that guy. And I went, what do you mean? She said, well, sounds like you're lusting after him. And here I, I was seeing this man who was a handsome man, but I was seeing him as an object. I wasn't seeing him as a real person. And that's when I first started getting the notion of what lust was about. Staying in my head, going back into a dream world. You know, as I think about all the times I did that over the years, of how I looked at people and saw them not as a person. I saw them as something to control or to manipulate. And I don't know if the control thing came because as a child I was afraid of men. um, And so I thought if I could control it, then I would be safe. I don't know. Um, But I started realizing that I was a predator. I'd heard other people talk about that. And when they would talk about what they're in their disease, that they'd been a predator, and I thought, sure glad that's not me. Well, hmm, it, guess it was. And I heard people talk about um, being a voyeur, and I thought, glad that's not me. Well, walking by people's homes when I'd be out walking or exercising, I'd always look in windows. I mean, I wouldn't stop and stare, but I was taking from people. Um, they thought that they were living in a safe neighborhood and people like me were walking by. Uh, and that's because I didn't want to live in my world. I wanted to live in somebody else's. Uh, the more I did those kinds of things um, and became aware, that old guilt and shame and remorse started coming up again. And I couldn't figure it out because I wasn't having sex. But I realized that it was lust, that progressive. You know, and I've heard people talk in meetings, and I have to say I've been a little judgmental. It's like, I've been sober three years and two days. And then in their share talk about going on the Internet and looking at pornography. And I'm like, what? You know, it's like, for me, it isn't just about the sobriety definition. I know for me, if it's about looking at images and having them in my head because I can't get rid of those images once they're there. And so I started realizing, letting go of judgment. First of all, they were all children of, of God. We're all children of God. But it reminded me that lust is really my core addiction. Um, I want what I don't have. Uh, going back and Unlike the men in our fellowship, I haven't memorized all the pages in our literature. If I had, I would tell you that talking about expectations and acceptance is back, I don't know, in pages 400 somewhere. Check it out. You'll find it. Um, I've also really learned that men and women do process things differently. Um, And I, I love 
That's why I love mixed meetings, because I hear how men have an issue and how they work through it. And I've had guys tell me it's helpful to hear women share because they get a perspective on how a woman might see things and process it. Um, but the, um, that acceptance and expectation, I think with the expectation, that's when I built my fantasy world. You know, whatever was going to look good. Um, my fantasy world was I was going to be this super-duper woman uh, in SA and any new women, they were going to look up to me and, yay, weren't you wonderful? Well, that's called pride, uh, a character defect. Now, I've also learned that character defects have a positive side. It's good to have pride in what you do. Uh, it's less healthy to be prideful to the point that you think you're better than other people. Um, so I was a little bit angry when a few women in the fellowship, new people that had come in, decided they need a women's meeting. Really? I had to get sober with a bunch of guys. Everybody should have to get sober with a bunch of guys. Um, how, how sad is that? Again, I'm realizing more and more of those character defects popping up. And something that I read, I think I made a note of it. Um, again, it's in Recovery Continues. Um, oh, here it is. On page 35. This, <laughs> Stacy, my sweet friend, and I talked a couple weeks ago. She'd been working for quite a while on her comments. If I'm honest, I started really, you know, writing things down Wednesday. So, um, and I couldn't find my white book. So Wednesday evening, I'm like, really? You know, you've piddled around. It's time to, you know, get busy. And you can't find your white book. Okay. Well, I did have my recovery continues. And it's amazing to me how many of the sections talk about lust. It's like, wow. You know, it talks about another look at lust. Um, another look at the misconnection, um, why relations didn't work for me, the invisible monster. You know, it's just like lust, sex, and the marriage misconnection. So if you are thinking about issues around lust, this has got great stories in it. On page 35, this really came into to my heart. It said, I'm not merely the sum of my actions. I'm the thoughts and intents of my heart. And I thought, wow, that's true. I, I really, you know, can do, I'm a great good deed doer. I'm probably one of the, I'll take, be prideful. I'm probably one of the best good deed doers around, except for myself. Inside me, though, I didn't always have positive reasons for doing what I did. And so I think thoughts and intents of my heart is really important. I guess I thought objectifying someone um, was an okay thing, and then I realized that it was time to go back and work on the steps. Uh, another situation similar to this happened, and my sister was dying of cancer, and our priest mother was... Uh, 
quite ill, so our priest was in and out of town. We had just hired a new uh, assistant priest, and um, so I wanted him to meet my sister. So if she, when, she, when she died, there would be somebody who at least had met her. And so I introduced myself to um, this man's wife, and so he came over the first time. Well, he was just my dream guy. He had a great sense of humor, a little bit of an edge to him. He was funny, and I was thrilled that he would um, be willing to come spend time with my sister. Well, that's okay, except he stayed in my head. About a month or so after my sister died, um, our church is downtown, and I work downtown. He stopped by and asked if I wanted to go over to the farmer's market for lunch. Innocent, right? Sure. Somebody nice from church. Let's go to lunch. Um, had a great time. And I went to SA meetings. I'd talk about um, this man. Uh, we went to lunch several times. We'd email, you know, jokes back and forth. And, you know, it wasn't a secret. You know, we are out in public. Um, friends at church knew that uh, this man and I went for lunch occasionally. And suddenly he stopped stopping by. He stopped sending emails, and I'm like, it's my fault. I've, what have I done wrong? Did I make him mad? Should I call him? Should I, you know, run by the church? You know, what can I do to make it right? I don't, I'm supposed to be the one that ends relationships. I have to be in control. I have to manipulate. Well, it suddenly dawned on me, I was having an emotional affair with this guy. And... Now it embarrasses me to think about that, um, how I could take something and make it such a fantasy that this man who was married, um, though I thought his wife was kind of mean, um, that was just my own personal view. Um, it didn't matter what I thought about her. He was married to her. Obviously, he cared for her. And um, I would love to know what happened. You know, my little addict's like, well, what, what could I have done differently? Um, matter of fact, I saw him this past Easter. He came to my church. I saw him sitting there with another woman. I thought, huh, he got rid of his wife. Good for him. And maybe he'd like to talk to me again. Well, he didn't speak. And I thought, oh, he just didn't see me. Um, there was another celebration in our church about a week later, and I was helping set up, and, and he walked in. If he didn't see me, then he is blind. But he put his things down, walked right on by, and didn't say a word. Now, how rude. How rude. You know somebody, and you don't at least say hello. Yeah, well, okay. That's my addict. That's my lust. Kind of wanting that misconnection again. Um, <laughs> back on in recovery continues. Um, it says the first layer or level of the self, the sober sexaholic in recovery, seems to become aware and begin to get victory over is lust. The typical reaction is, I had no idea I was so full of lust until I stopped acting out. So I had to get sober first. I had to take some of that chemical out of my brain. And then we began to see the depth of our lust. 
Because when we stop, the pain can either take us to God or back out in the insanity. The only way to be free of it was to do it. Um, You know, I learn a new lesson every day. Um, I can really give good suggestions or thoughts to sponsees or other people in the program. And I can't do it alone because this morning, you know, my sponsee doesn't have as much sobriety as I do, but by talking with her and hearing her and getting out of my head, I could let go of the the lust or the need for perfection. So this isn't an an individual recovery program at all. Um, I tried being alone didn't work very well. Uh, <laughs> I will go back a bit talking about expectations and acceptance. Um, a few years ago, I was invited to speak uh, to a, a group in Atlanta, a meeting kind of like this. I was so proud of myself, a good pride. I'm historically late. I made sure I was on time. I got to this church, big church one of the big mega churches. And I didn't see folks that looked like they might be coming to a meeting. What I saw happened to be a group of Korean people going in to church. I'm like, oh, well, maybe the essay means over here somewhere. And so I wandered in that big church. I mean, you know how big some of the mega churches are. Finally, I saw a guy with a coffee pot, you know, on a tray. And I thought, coffee, addicts, I'll bet you there's a meeting somewhere. (laughs) If he'd had sugar and stuff, I would have been for sure. Um, We always have, you know, some nod to healthy things. But, you know, you notice I picked up a Reese's peanut butter cup. Um, So I said, I rode upstairs with him. I said, do you know if there's um, a 12-step meeting? And he kind of looked at me like, what are you talking about? Um, I said, you know, is there a meeting up here? And he said, oh, no, um, I'm sorry. I'm taking this coffee somewhere else. So we get back on the elevator to go back downstairs. I drop my keys down the elevator shaft. Yeah. I'm like, "Um, okay. It's going to be okay. So... He took me to the guy who was, you know, the church person in charge, explained what had happened. I'm staying calm. God's with me. And he said, well, let me call the elevator company. Now, meanwhile, I'm getting close to being late to the meeting. Calm. I'm breathing. So he calls the elevator company, and he said, well, they'll come out today for $1,000 or come out Monday for free. I'm like, thousand dollars uh yeah no so i thought okay i i I can have somebody come out from triple a make a new key for my car you know i don't ever carry many keys on a key ring and this nice man said um i told him what church he said oh that's a block and a half down his wife came by with the kids drove me to the other church you know, God providing for me what I couldn't do for myself. 
So I got in, um, talked with um, the man I'd been in contact with, explained what had happened. And so he took me back over at lunchtime. I called AAA. God has a great sense of humor. AAA folks came out. They've got this magic little thing that's supposed they can put it in, you know, your keyhole and magic happens and they can make a key. I don't know what happens. (laughs) Magical thinking. It didn't work. Uh, Somehow, and I don't really remember this part, but somehow, (laughs) somehow he got the trunk opened and got inside my car. I mean, this is you know, in this parking lot, and it's hot, you know, all these people around. By this time, my acceptance level's pretty low. <laughs> I'm like, okay, 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 you know, it's going to be fine, it's going to be fine. So we finally got a key made. Now, I had this wonderful thing all written out of what I, uh, what I was going to say to um, the folks there. And instead, I think God wanted me to talk about expectations and acceptance because when I build up expectations I'm saying this I just realized that's kind of living in lust I'm trying to build my world my perfect little world what it looks like Um, because I'm missing everything that's going on around me because I'm building this perfect little world in my mind this is what's going to happen and you know this person's going to do this and this and this. And then when it doesn't happen, I'm so upset. Um, which makes me, as I say that, another really good, helpful thing for me to read is in the AA Big Book. Again, some of y'all may know the pages, but it's, I think it's Chapter 5, How It Works. And it talks about the actor who has everything all planned out. So whenever I start feeling really nuts, that's such a good chapter for me to read because that's to me, fits hand in glove with the expectations and acceptance. I expect the actors to act a certain way. And when they don't, it's all their fault. Certainly it's not mine. It's their fault. And so the more I can let go and go, okay, God, I I don't get it. So when um, I've had folks ask me, like, I I can't get this thing or this person out of my head. And I know, and there may be people in this room who've heard me say, you know, just go, okay, God, just please just take this. And I'm sure their thought is, yeah, right. Well, my sponsor told me that, and it worked. Sometimes I would have to give that over a lot in a day. Um, if that thought, that person, that image came up, I'd go, God, I just want to give this to you. The first time I did that, um, I was supposed to talk job for job situation. I was pretty new in recovery. It was beautiful outside. We were at a state park. And I went for a walk. And it was just all, all I could think of was essay, you know, sobriety and and I was feeling a lot of pain. I went, okay, God, I commit to you to go back and work on this later. For now, I'd like you to help me stay in the moment to do my job so that I can focus on what I want to say. And you know, 
it worked. Some people talk about coincidences. I don't really believe in coincidences. Um, I, I really think God plays a part in our lives. You know, and I liked um, in yesterday's Daily Reflections, I hear a lot of folks sometimes talk about, um, you know, why does God let bad things happen? For me, not for everybody, but for me, God doesn't let things happen. Life happens. Um, Again, in my belief, God has given us free will. He's given us a chance to make choices. And so when bad things happen, I hear story after story of how God showed up. God showed up in folks just like y'all. He showed up to be there just to sit with somebody, just to give them a hug. Um, A good example of that was I heard um, someone from California who'd gone on a care team to New York uh, after 9-11. And so when this care team got there, they went to the person running the crisis center. And they said, what can we do? And they said, you can just listen. Just listen to people. And he said, every person he talked with talked about how God had been there with them. You know, how somehow there'd been a light that showed them through this one area or how they'd felt somebody be with them to lead them through something, or watching the firemen or the police go back in, you know, to rescue people. And he said only one person, when he talked to them, said, you know, why could God let this happen? You know, God wasn't here. And the guy just listened. And then he started telling about things that he'd seen, of people, you know, again, people who'd gone back to help, uh, people who'd rescued people. And he said, maybe God was here. And so I think it's really, for me, when a tragedy strikes, and that's why I I don't listen to the news. I don't watch the news on TV. I don't listen to it on the radio. I, uh, I will glance at headlines on the Internet because I think I have to fix every problem in the world. If I hear about the Syrian people who are having to flee, I want to sit down and figure out a way that I can go help because I have all the answers and I can fix it. Or um, I used to love politics. I don't anymore. Um, And I must admit, I occasionally listen to some of the debates until I go, oh, quit, quit. Um, Because I'm powerless. The only thing I have power over is me. And if I get caught up in all the drama of the world, uh, our country, someone else's life, right now my sister's dealing, my sister, God rest her soul, um, my niece's husband is struggling with alcohol. I think I have all the answers that I can go down and fix the situation. I can't. I get to turn them over to God. And hopefully my being willing to listen is a way I can show God's love to other people. Because um, recently I've had that shown to me in my neighbor, whose daughter is a heroin addict. And who's on any other drug she can get her hands on. 
um, this week, I got a call at four in the morning from my neighbor who's raising the three grandchildren, and she was hysterical. Uh, long story short, she'd finally called the police. It had not turned out well with the police. And they, the police had told her they were going to call DCS. And she was frantic. Um, and all I could do was sit and listen to her and kind of remind her to breathe. Um, I wanted to fix it. I wanted because her daughter kept, you know, showing up, you know, screaming, and I wanted to beat the shit. Sorry, out of that little girl. Well, not little. She's twenty-three. How she could cause that much pain to her mom and to her kids, and it was not my story to fix. My story or my part was to sit there and let my friend cry and let her talk about what if. And I wanted to go, it's, you know, tomorrow's a new day. It's going to be okay. And, and I started to say something about, you know, DC. She said, Priscilla, I just need to talk. I said. And so one of the things I would remind everybody is if I take care of myself, and do what I'm supposed to do, that's how I take care of other people. Because if I'm not taking care of me, um, and I, I want to share that um, one of the things I haven't been doing really good are is taking care of myself. Um, I, a lot of feelings have been coming up for me lately. Um, and my way of, I'm not doing s- sexual things. I'm really not lusting after a connection with another person. But what the way I'm getting out of reality has been eating too much. And I've started smoking again. And I've been watching way too much TV. That's lust for me. That's lust. Because I'm not staying in the moment and I'm not trusting God. Now, that's not a particularly good thing to say on this, that it's just for today, but it is just for today. Um, I could beat myself up for all those things. Um, they're not things I'm proud of. They're things I'm aware of. Um, they're things, this morning before I came, I had just a you know, bite of breakfast while the cats had their breakfast. And then I thought, oh, I've got time to smoke a cigarette. So I sat down. I'd already prayed the third step prayer, sat down, and took about, I don't know, three or four puffs off that cigarette. And I'm like, why am I smoking this? It tastes terrible. And I took another puff. That's good addict behavior. Really? I mean, how many times you thought, I'm not going to do X, Y, Z again, and then turn right around and do it, even though you know the consequences. Somebody started one time years ago to tell me all the reasons why I wouldn't, shouldn't smoke. And I went, I know. I know that. My parents have tried to get me to stop. My sister. And you're certainly not going to do it. So knowing consequences of all those things and continuing to do them is insanity for me. So I can find lots of ways to lust. Um, I hope that we will continue to talk about lust in our meetings. Um, 
because I think that can stumble, get more people tripped up than a lot of things. And and lust is hard. You know, I think sometimes people talk a lot about lust in, in relationship to, to sexual kind of things. I, For me, it's about anything that keeps me out of the moment. If I'm in my head worrying about something, if I'm going... I used to have a sponsee a long time ago, and she would worry and worry and you know about something that had happened and I go, you know we've talked about that let's you know we, you can't fix the past and she said, I'm just processing things well, you can process something to death or yourself to death um, so for me, staying in the moment means that I'm standing here in front of y'all. Um, I've been moving around a lot. I'm looking at chocolate. Um, and if I keep focusing on what I've been doing in the past, then I'm not here looking at y'all. So I, it's a continual process for me to stay in the moment. Staying in the moment helps me stay sober. And I want to end with... Um, Something from, again, recovery continues, the joy response. Uh, It's talking about once I started staying sober, every lust temptation I had was accompanied by fear. The more of a trigger the image was, the greater the fear. This fear isn't easy to describe. It seems to include fear of women, fear of man, fear of being overwhelmed, fear of losing control, Fear that the first drink will light the fuse of desire that will ignite my whole being. Fear of unleashing the monster. Fear of shutting out God. Fear of the darkness that descends. And it goes on to um, say that all this time I use various prayers in the moment of temptation. I'm powerless. Please help me. I don't want any part of this lust, etc. It worked, thank God. Such actions became an immediate reflex, almost automatic. I had, to, had come to make peace with my lust. I discovered great freedom in acknowledging what I really am. No more denial or blaming it on others or on stress or circumstances. I'm a lustaholic, and it's my lust that wants to burst out. It was as though I'd come to an understanding that lust would always be there, waiting for an opportunity to be indulged but that I could respond and surrender, that quiet dying upward and be freed from it by his grace. I was comfortable with the situation, but I began to wonder, then ask, is there something better than fear? Just recently I was studying the first few paragraphs of the letter of James when something struck me. He says, count it all joy. When you fall into various temptations, it occurred to me I might try gratitude whenever I was tempted. The next temptation I had happened to be resentment and anger. And as I became aware of it, I thanked God for the situation and for victory over my resentment. Doing that felt strange, but I thanked him for both trial and victory while being resentful. I was immediately loosed from it, and the feeling that followed was better than what used to accompany the previous deliverances. As victorious as the fear surrender experiences had been, this was better. The feeling was positive and buoyant. Instead of mere relief, there was something new, joy. I tried this on the next lust temptation. 
As soon as I thanked him for the victory, the fear dissolved and joy came. So I kept trying it on lust and resentment and then on fear, my big three. It worked on all of them, and it's still working. I bring my rescuer into the temptation with me. This is very new for me today, but I like the feeling. Acceptance, gratitude, and joy are better than fear. And I'd rather have this than the mood-altering pills I took before sobriety. Real joy and without a hangover. I'm not naturally a very joyful person, but now I have a way I can actually bring joy into my life through every temptation and trial. Whenever I count it all joy, I have joy. What a gift. Thank you guys very much.